This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we're rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Paul visits James, Paul arrested in the temple, Paul asks to speak, Paul's story begun, and Paul's story interrupted. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Whether you're speaking morally or politically, it is just wrong to say that pro-life states are making a mistake in passing pro-life legislation. And I worry that Trump is giving aid to people who are politically averse to doing the right thing on abortion law. There are people who are absolutely sure that there are no absolutes. And the statement that there are no absolutes is an absolute statement. So that statement violates the law of non-contradiction and can therefore not be true. The woke are not having their own children. My friends on the left have zero to two kids. My friends on the right have two to 12 kids. And so they're not making their own kids. So I think that their hope is to take ours and raise ours and indoctrinate ours. Salvation is forgiveness. Salvation is new life in Christ, not affirmation of our desires. God didn't give the gospel to affirm us. He gave the gospel to save us. This is Brian from Dallas. Texas dove hunters love issues, etc. in the field. Adios, palomas. The Word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in a manner as if the mere inert acceptance of truths while a person is living in mortal sins renders that person righteous in the sight of God and saves him, or as if faith makes a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation of his mode of living. That's the sixth thesis from CFW Walther's proper distinction between law and gospel. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Monday afternoon, September the 25th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor Will Whedon joins us for our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. And a little bit later this afternoon, Pastor Sean Denzer will help us look forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, talking about the authority of Jesus being challenged and the parable of two sons. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. He formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the book Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. He's host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Before we get to that thesis, it's an interesting way that Walther begins what would be then his 20th evening lecture as he's talking to these young seminarians. He says, when the place has been assigned to a candidate of theology, where are they going to discharge the office of the ministry? He says, that place ought to be to him the dearest, most beautiful, and most precious spot on earth. And he didn't stop there. Why does he begin this way? Yeah, he wants these young men, as they go out into their charges, to look upon their their first calls as being the place where, beyond shadow of doubt, God wants them, where God has put them to do his great work. And when they do that, he says, then it doesn't really matter where you go, does it? I mean, whether you're in, he says, a metropolis or a small town, if you're in a bleak prairie or in a clearing in a forest, or if you're in some flourishing settlement or even sent out to the desert, he said, it should be your miniature paradise because that's where you know you can serve 
the heavenly Father, and he will send his holy angels to attend you, and you will be ministering with them to the heirs of salvation. And so he said we should definitely uh, not then be willing to uh, look for joy in any other place than in that place where God has put us to dish out the good gifts of eternal life. It's a beautiful encouragement for the young people. And do you remember those days, Todd, when we were coming real up close up to, to call day? The, the district presidents probably know where you're going, but you don't know where you're going yet. And there's all this big concern about the where, where, where. Well, I think Walter's trying to do an end run around that by saying, it doesn't matter where, where, where. Wherever you are sent, it's going to be a wonderful place because God has put you there to do his work. How does that help introduce the 10th thesis that we're going to be looking at today? Well, he talks about what you might find when you get there. (laughs) He says, oh, it might be just the, the most wonderful place on God's earth for you to minister, but you might find out when you get into a place that, ooh, your congregation might seem to be mostly made up of people who don't honestly seem to be converted. What do you do then? Or what about if you get to a place and you got a whole bunch of legalists there? You know, they're fighting against the freedom and joy of the gospel. Or on the other hand, flip it. What if you get to a place and it's filled with a bunch of people who are antinomian in their approach and, you know, they, they, they just really haven't been terrified at all by the law. And he's says, what are you going to do to deal with all these different situations you're going to find when you get out there into your first parish? And also, if you get to a place where, praise be to God, the people have been properly taught, and they are hungering for the Word of God, and they rejoice to welcome you, and uh, it, it really does seem like a little paradise on earth. He says, what are you going to do for them too? So as he works his way through all of the scenarios, he finally comes down to this. He says, you've got to determine as a young pastor or I should say a new pastor, you may not be a young pastor, but a new pastor, that you're going to go out and make your goal be that you will properly divide the law and the gospel in such a way that on the day of judgment, none of these people's damnation is on your hands, that you will have proclaimed to them the word of God so clearly, making a proper distinction between the law and the gospel, that there is no excuse they can give And if they are lost on that day, it will be on their heads alone and not on yours. So that leads him into the whole matter of talking about, well, okay, let's get right back to how do we make further distinctions between the law and the gospel, thus bridging into thesis number 10. So he presents two scenarios in this thesis, one in which a preacher describes faith, he says, in a manner as if it were the mere inert acceptance of truths while a person is still living in mortal sins that renders this person righteous in the sight of God and saves him. Let's talk about that one first. Yeah. He is really clear in in his exposition that the first part of the thesis really is aiming at what came out of the Council of Trent with Rome. It does have implication also for other Protestants, but it's really aimed at the teaching of the Council of Trent. The way that the Roman Catholic Church, well, I mean, you can see this throughout our confessions. Whenever this discussion comes up, Rome would say, yes, you're saved by faith, but by faith formed by love, by which they made love actually be the mother of faith. And Lutherans simply invert that and say, no, 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 no. It is 
faith. It is real faith in Jesus Christ that gives birth to love. And then love is not something that you bring along and tack on to faith at the end. Love actually blooms forth from it. That's sort of the the end of the thesis. So back to the beginning again. Where do we get this from in, in the Word of God? Well, he turns, first of all, to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. This is the key verse. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. <laughs> Do you see that? It's not love working through faith. It's faith that actually works through love. Love is not added to faith. Love, instead, just simply grows out of it. He says, a fruitful tree does not produce fruit by someone's order, but because while there is vitality in it and is not dried up, it must produce fruit spontaneously. Faith is such a tree. It proves its vitality by bearing fruit. It's withered when it fails to bring forth fruit. The sun, likewise, doesn't need to be told to shine. It'll continue shining till judgment day without anyone issuing orders to it. Faith is such a son. I just love that. So he's stressing the spontaneous nature of the works that will flow out from faith, the love that shows up in our lives out from the gift of saving faith. After Galatians 5, he moves on into Acts 5.19. Peter's in the middle of preaching here. Remember, he's trying to show at the great council in Jerusalem that God treated the the Gentiles in the same way he treated the Jews. So he says in Acts 19, verse 5, and he made no distinction between us, that is the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Hearts aren't cleansed by love. Hearts are cleansed by faith. Peter makes it perfectly clear. Or if you really want to be ornery about it, you can say, There you go. The first pope makes it clear to you. Hearts are made clean by faith, not by love. When he talks about that, he says, a person who claims to have a firm faith, which he'll never abandon, but who still has an impure heart, has to be told, look, you're in great darkness. You don't have any faith at all. You may regard all the doctrines that are preached in the Lutheran church as true. But if your heart is still in its old condition, if it's still filled with the love of sin and you still act contrary to your conscience, your whole faith is just a sham. It's not the faith of the Holy Spirit, which he speaks about when he uses the word faith and the scripture. For that faith, which is the genuine article, purifies, cleanses the heart. That's a very important point he makes there. He goes on to John 5. What does he find there? In John 5, verse 44, he reads, How can you believe when you receive glory or honor from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And Walter says, man, this is an awful verdict pronounced in these words by the Savior on all those who are seeking honor from men. He just says, well, they don't have any faith. It's one of the fruits of faith that from the moment it begins to grow up in the heart, it gives all honor to God alone. When the believer does receive honor from men, he's always 
inwardly convinced that he's not merited any kind of honor. And so he says to God, whatever of good this life of mine has shown is altogether thine. Thus returning to God, any honor bestowed upon him. To God alone be the glory. He says a person without faith on finding himself lowered or despised at once becomes depressed and morose because he's not getting what he seeks. And he says, there are preachers of this sort who enter the pulpit under the dominant influence of an ambitious passion and feel tickled when people who may be altogether unqualified to appraise them admire the wonderful delivery of such a young preacher, and they predict, ah, he's going to have a great future in the church. He likes that better than when one slips him a $10 bill, although he'll accept that too. (laughs) But jesting aside, Walter says, we're all haughty, proud, and ambitious. And this noxious vice can be driven from our hearts only by the Holy Ghost. But we never become rid of it entirely. An evil root always remains in the heart. But a believer, noticing this thing in himself, abominates it, reprobates himself, feels ashamed of himself, and asks God to deliver him from the horrible, abominable notions of pride. I think that's just absolutely a, a stunning statement there. The next passage that he takes up is 1 John 5. Yeah, he turns to 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So Walter concludes from that. So a person in his old nature and not born of God, a person who still loves the world and still seeks his heart's satisfaction and its follies and vanities. That person has no faith. Faith overcomes the world. If your faith isn't overcoming the world that way in your own heart, he's like, well, it's not the real living thing. And then he turns to James chapter 2, verse 1. And there we have, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And no partiality or no respect of persons, preferring people who are rich and have money than the poor. That means respecting a person's person. And that's something faith is not going to tolerate. The tendency to do this, Walter says, leaves the heart with the very entrance of faith. When faith comes in, that currying favor with others like that, it exits. It can't stay. To the person who is a true believer, a poor beggar, having been redeemed by the blood of the Son of God, is absolutely as priceless, worth as much, he says, as a king or an emperor. And he says, that's the kind of miracle, would you look at that, that faith works in people's hearts. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part 13 of our series with him on the proper distinction between law and gospel. He will go on to say that... There is a way of treating one's faith, an inert mental act of regarding certain matters as true, which actually turns faith into a work. Issues Etc. regular guests Dr. Reed Lessing and Dr. Andrew Steinman are the authors of our Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 
1-800-325-3040, or learn more about the Messianic message at issuesetc.org. Study the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens with the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, The Messianic Message. This fallen creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ's altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you're looking for a good Lutheran church in Scarsdale, New York, one that has sound teaching based on the Word of God and takes pride in the confessions, look no further than Trinity Lutheran Church in Scarsdale, New York, where every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. we have Bible study and Sunday school, followed by the service at 10. Again, good liturgical confessional worship. By the grace of God, find us at trinityscarsdale.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part 13 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. He is host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Well, Walther goes on to say, now to represent justifying and saving faith as the inert mental act of regarding certain matters as true, which can coexist with mortal sin, means to treat faith as a work which man can produce in himself. What is he saying there? Yeah, well, if faith is nothing more than your agreement to statements of dogma and doctrine, and it's nothing more than that, then you can have faith like that And you can come up with it all on your own without any help from the Holy Spirit. You can agree to agree to it. And what it leaves you, though, is with an uncleansed heart, a heart that still is wanting to do. It says, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and that's the end of it. And that heart, that unrepentant heart that still remains, is the heart of the problem. And that's what we would refer to as mortal sin. And we'll unpack that term a little bit more in detail as we work our way through this next section. But he's really lining this out as the position which was adopted by the Roman Church in the Council of Trent. Now, back in the old days when you and I were at seminary, we had a class called Comparative Symbolics. And that was a fun class. You had to go through and sort of read and study the confessions of the various Christian churches and and seek to understand them and compare them to one another and to the confessions of the Lutheran Church. And in our day, it's kind of, I think, become unpopular to use that method of comparing the technical term, church symbol, or we'd say creed or confession, to confession. But it still is one of the most illuminating things a Christian can do to get a handle on what the different Christian churches actually profess and believe. So the Council of Trent 
issued a whole series of decrees that were the Roman Church officially holds them to be irreformable. It was regarded as an ecumenical council, and uh, and so the stuff decreed here is supposed to last until the day of Christ's return. Well, this Council of Trent, Walter reminds us, was convened right shortly before uh, months before Dr. Luther died, and he says the council put its seal on all the errors which in the course of time had been adopted by the Roman church. In other words, it didn't really back away from any of their assertions, but it presented them in a subtler manner than had been done by the theologians of that age. If you compare the Council of Trent to the initial response to the Augsburg Confession called the Confutatio, oh my goodness, the Council of Trent is light years better than the Confutatio. But at the same time, it still retained the basic errors. And you're going to hear one of those here when he quotes. He quotes from this decree in the Council of Trent, put together, he said, by the Roman theologian Schmetz. He wrote, In defense of the divine law, which excommunicates not only unbelievers, but also believers, namely such as our fornicators, adulterers, Peter asks, drunkards, robbers, and those who commit mortal sin, it must be firmly maintained that the gospel, grace, righteousness, and the forgiveness of sins may be lost, not only by unbelief, but by which faith itself is lost, but also by any other mortal sin, although faith is not lost by such sin. So Walter wants us to think about that. The council admits that a person who turns unbeliever loses faith. Well, okay, that should not be a problem. It is inserted for the purpose, though, of blinding and misleading men. It teaches that salvation may be forfeited while faith is not lost, which is quite correct when applied to the religion of the papists, Walther says. For the most depraved Catholic can be the best member of the Catholic Church. According to the religion of Rome, there can be believing thieves, believing fornicators, believing adulterers, believing pederasts, believing misers, believing drunkards, blasphemers, and robbers. Walter said, observe that these unfortunate people simply have no conception what faith actually is. If they had an inkling of it, they would see that a wicked man cannot truly believe he cannot have a genuine faith. At the same time, they would see that the Lutheran church does not believe what they think it believes. Far from placing good works way in the background, the doctrine of the Lutheran church beautifully points to the true source from which all good works begin to spring. A person who by the Holy Spirit and the grace of God has obtained a living confidence in Christ cannot abide in sin. Why? Because he has a living faith, and faith changes and purifies his heart. That is such an important point. Now, we hear something sort of uh, approaching it from the other side. He turns to another symbol, this time of the Calvinists at the great synod of Dort. From chapter 5 of that synod, he reads, because of the remnants of sin dwelling in them, moreover, because of the temptations of the world and Satan, the converted cannot abide in grace when left to their own natural resources. 
But God is faithful and mercifully confirms them in the grace bestowed on them and keeps them in the same till the end. However, although the power of God which confirms and keeps true believers in grace is too great to be overcome by their flesh, nevertheless, the converted are not always urged and moved by God in such a manner that in a certain particular act they do not depart from the guidance of grace, nor are seduced by the lusts of the flesh to obey them. For this reason, they must continually watch and pray, lest they be led into temptation. If they fail to do this, they may not only by the flesh, the world, and Satan be hurried into grievous and awful sins, but occasionally they are hurried into such sins by a just, permissive providence of God. Instances of this are the deplorable fall of David, Peter, and other saints, which are recorded in Scripture. However, by such heinous sins, they greatly offend God, incur moral guilt, grieve the Holy Spirit, and interrupt the exercise of faith. Note, mark that, the exercise of faith, not faith itself. They grossly violate their conscience and occasionally lose the consciousness of their faith for a season until they return to the right way by earnest repentance. And God again makes his fatherly countenance shine upon them. For because of his unalterable decree of predestination, God, who is rich in mercy, does not entirely take his Holy Spirit away from his own in such deplorable instances, nor does he permit them to lapse to the point where they would fall from the grace of adoption to sonship and from the state of being justified. You see what he's saying there? Basically, what we characterize by the, the statement, once saved, always saved. The people that have been brought to faith Let's go right back to David in that example. So he's saying David remained a believer even when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed and then tried to cover up the whole thing. While all that was going on, David still retained his saving faith in Yahweh. So that's highly problematic, I think. And Walter cites from these two confessions of other churches before he gets to the confession of our own from the small called articles. And just listen to how different this is from what you just heard. On the other hand, writes Luther, certain sects may arise. Some may already exist. During the peasant rebellion, I encountered some who held that those who had once received the spirit or the forgiveness of sins or had become believers, even if they later sin, would still remain in the faith. Such sin, they think, would not harm them. They say, do whatever you please. If you believe, it all amounts to nothing. Faith blots out all sins and such. They also say that if anyone sins after he has received faith in the Spirit, well, then he never truly had the Spirit and faith. I have seen and heard many such madmen. I fear that such a devil is still in some of them. So it is necessary to know and to teach this. When holy people, still having and feeling original sin and daily repenting and striving against it, happen to fall into manifest sins as David did into adultery, murder, and blasphemy, then faith 
and the Holy Spirit have left them. The Holy Spirit does not permit sin to have dominion, to gain the upper hand so that it can be carried out, but represses and restrains it from doing what it wants. If sin does what it wants, the Holy Spirit and faith are not present. For St. John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, and he cannot keep on sinning, 1 John 3, verse 9. And yet, it is also true when St. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So contrary to either of the positions we, we had heard first, the Lutheran position simply says, look, you can fall away from the faith, and when you fall away from the faith, yes, you lose the Holy Spirit, you lose the forgiveness of sins, you lose all the gifts that Christ died to give to you, and the only way you can come into those gifts again is via the path of repentance, contrition and repentance. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's our series with him on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We'll have a little bit more from Luther in the Small Called Articles after the break as we address the issue of true faith and the good works that follow. Stay tuned. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we're rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Paul visits James, Paul arrested in the temple, Paul asks to speak, Paul's story begun, and Paul's story interrupted. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Have you ever wondered about some of the more difficult topics or teachings of Scripture, such as what does the Bible say about polygamy or slavery or the free will, or what about law and gospel? The October issue of The Lutheran Witness is a twin to the August 2022 issue, and it takes up some of these difficult teachings of Scripture and explains them in detail. To get your copy, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website witness.lsms.org. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Memoria Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. With the oldest deaconess program of the LCMS, Concordia University Chicago has fully certified young women for the deaconess vocation for more than 40 years. I'm Deaconess Kristen Wasilak, Program Director for Deaconess Studies. Help us identify the next generation of servants to care for souls, engage our communities in mercy, and teach God's Word. Learn more about Concordia Chicago's deaconess program today at cuchicago.edu. cuchicago.edu. The cross is our theology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. 
Bethlehem Lutheran, Sylvan Grove, Kansas, Faith Lutheran, Georgetown, Texas, Holy Cross Lutheran, Moline, Illinois, Emmanuel Lutheran, Perryville, Missouri, Mount Calvary Lutheran, San Antonio, Texas, Peace with Christ Lutheran, Fort Collins, Colorado, Shepherd of Peace Lutheran, Maumel, Arkansas, St. Mark Lutheran, Waco, Texas, St. Peter Lutheran, Clintonville, Wisconsin, and Trinity Lutheran, Wichita, Kansas. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including issues, etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. With the incarnation of Jesus, the kingdom of God arrived, and this was acknowledged by John the Baptist's message and Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God through the Gospels. This kingdom was to be a worldwide kingdom. As already prophesied in the Old Testament, Jesus commissioned his disciples to spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth, a process that continues to this day wherever the gospel of Christ is proclaimed. That's from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. Give Concordia Publishing House a call and order The Messianic Message, 1-800-325-3040 or browse before you buy at our website, issuesetc.org. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part 13 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. So he's come to the conclusion of uh, Luther's words in the small called articles there. What does Walther have to say about Luther's words there, especially with respect to King David and his loss of faith? Yeah, I mean, he, he is very blunt here. He says, David had ceased to be a prophet enlightened by the Holy Spirit and a child of God when he fell into sin. Had he died in those days, he would have gone to perdition. Yea, that could have happened to him during the entire year before Nathan came to preach repentance to him. For David had pronounced the man who had committed the crime narrated by Nathan a doomed man when Nathan told him, Thou art the man, and showed him that he had uttered his own sentence. If he wouldn't have turned from his iniquity, he would have gone straight to hell and been damned. Then Walter adds a really important point, one that I think we struggle with. He says, The light of faith can be extinguished not only by gross sins, but by any willful, intentional sin. Accordingly, Defection from the faith occurs far oftener than we imagine. Faith ceases not only in those who lead a life of shame, but also in such as permit themselves to be led astray against their better knowledge and the warning of their conscience. They plan to do a certain thing and they carry out their purpose, although they know it's contrary to God's word. In such instances, faith becomes extinct. However, the person caught in this snare promptly recovers his faith if he promptly arrests himself in his wrongdoing, as the instance of Peter shows. Peter didn't harden himself. When the glance of Jesus met his eyes, he went out and wept bitterly. That glance made him repent of his sin, causing him to realize the enormity of his offense and the unspeakable greatness of his Lord's mercy. It seemed to say, Peter, Peter, repent! and pierced his heart like a dagger. 
So Walter concludes this entire discussion of the small code article section with this line, happy the man and woman or child who after falling rises at once immediately and does not delay his repentance lest he arrive at a stage where his heart is hardened. So he takes sin very, very seriously there. And to show this is not just, you know, an isolated passage in the symbols with Luther on this, he then goes into quoting extensively from Luther on this very point. And as Luther unpacks it, he's um, responding to a commentary that was sent his way on the first epistle of John, in which the author insisted that the, the elect do not lose the Holy Spirit even when they engage in conscious sinning and gross vices. And Luther, he refuses to allow the publication of the commentary, and he writes his theological opinion to the point, and he signs, has other members of the faculty sign on with him, that, that this is false teaching. He says, when a person sins against his conscience, that is when he knowingly and intentionally acts contrary to God, as for instance, an adulterer or any other criminal who knowingly does wrong, he is, while consciously persisting in his intention, without repentance and faith, and does not please God. For example, while a person keeps the wife of another man, it's manifest that he's void of repentance, faith, and holiness. For the faith by which we are made righteous must be associated with a good conscience. It is absolutely impossible for these two things to coexist in a person. That is, faith which trusts in God and a wicked purpose, or as it's been called, an evil conscience. Faith and worship of God are delicate affairs. A very slight wound inflicted on the conscience may drive out faith and prayer. Every tried Christian frequently is put through this experience. So he's not writing about something he doesn't know about. He knows intimately how dangerous this is to give in to a sin that you know is wrong, to just give in to it and say, oh, well, God will forgive me. It's no big deal. He knows that is a faith-destroying act on our part. So he urges us against it. Now, this whole thing brings up the discussion of mortal sin. It just needs to be unpacked a little bit. So I want to stress here that the Lutheran reformers clearly taught and retained the categories of mortal sin and venial sin, but they did so in a way that did not allow you to look at any sin and say, well, that one's no big deal. So let me give you Melanchthon's definition of mortal sin first. He says, therefore, actual sin is mortal sin in one who falls after his reconciliation in an inward action as well as an outward one, which conflicts with the law of God and is done in violation of the conscience. For such a sin makes a man guilty of eternal wrath. The idea that some people have that in going against conscience, the elect do not drive out the Holy Spirit is a manifest error which must be condemned. Nor, in judging concerning our sin, must we look into the matter of election, but rather keep our eyes on the word of God, which has been given to us as showing us God's will, and we must be fearful 
knowing the judgment of God as set forth in his word and in example, so that we do not become hardened in foolhardy complacency or blindness. We confess that there is sin in the regenerate, but that it doesn't rule or hold dominion as long as he does not yield to sin, but resists it. And if sin does rule, it brings eternal destruction. So Melanchthon was beautifully clear there, and Chemnitz just picks up on the same thought in his wonderful little Incredian on Word, Sacrament, and Ministry. He says, but what if we indulge and delight in evil lusts and seek occasions to give them free reign? Then they become mortal sin because there surely is no room for repentance and faith where the lusts of the flesh are served and given into, given reign, so that they break out into action. It is the nature and particular character of true faith that it does not seek how to commit, continue, and heap up sins freely, but rather hungers and thirsts after righteousness and releases and frees from sin. Therefore, where there is no true repentance, the Holy Spirit pronounces a very solemn sentence. And where there is no true faith, there is neither Christ, nor the Holy Spirit, nor the grace of God, nor the forgiveness of sins, nor any salvation. So this is why it really does matter when we're teaching on these things that we don't give people the impression ever that you know that God really hated you doing that, but you went ahead and said, I'm going to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, and I'm going to do it anyway, and it really doesn't matter. And it's all okay because God does forgive and love you. No, no. We need to say to such a person that's willing to ditch the law and commandments of God to fulfill their own lust, we have to be able to say, no, that is truly a mortal sin, which will drive out faith in the Holy Spirit. Don't do it. There's no guarantee that you'll be in a position to return to faith after you've driven it out. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Pastor Whedon is host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. We'll be right back. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. 
You're listening to Issues Etc. Pumpkin spice flavored everything is in the air. It's the perfect time of year to curl up with a nice warm beverage using one of Ad Crusom's mugs, featuring your favorite Lutheran symbols, Bible verses, or Christian humor. For example, Jesus' personality type is INRI. St. Paul is the patron saint of the run on sentence. And of course, chancel culture is practiced here. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A D C R U C E M.com. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org. Welcome back to Issues Satira. I'm Todd Vulcan. On this Monday, September the 25th, Pastor Will Whedon is with us for our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Will, are we ready to proceed to the 21st evening lecture where he takes up the next part of his thesis? Yeah, I mean, he, he is going to move in this next section, the 21st evening lecture, that would be March 6th of 1885. He moves into treating specifically this idea. He says, clearly, the Holy Scriptures emphatically testify that there can be no genuine faith without love, without a renewal of the heart, without sanctification, without an abundance of good works. But it testifies at the same time that the renewal of the heart, love and good works, which faith produces, are not the justifying and saving element in a person's faith. So he wants to make that very, very clear. Yes, living faith will change you, but faith doesn't save you because it's changing you. Faith saves you because it seizes hold of Christ and his redemption. He gives you a whole pile of scripture passages. Most of them are fairly well known. For example, Romans 4, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may be by grace and guaranteed to all his offspring, not to the adherent of the law alone, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. And in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, you know, I count everything law for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count it rubbish, garbage, in order to gain Christ and be found in him, not with the righteousness of my own that comes from my own observance of the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Similarly, Ephesians 2, Romans 11, verse 6, for if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. And so he sort of concludes then, so nothing remains but for a person to firmly believe that he's been made righteous out of God's pure, everlasting mercy and by faith. Even when his faith bears good fruits, these follow later after he has received everything that's necessary for his salvation. First, a person is saved, then he becomes godly. He must first be made an heir of heaven and saved. After that, he begins to live a life filled with gratitude to God. And Walter really stresses this point from Luther that the Christian religion is fundamentally, in a word, a religion of gratitude. Everything has been given us. Righteousness, our everlasting heritage, our salvation. And so all that remains for us to do is to thank God. In fact, only works proceeding from gratitude 
end up being reckoned as genuinely good works. And uh, he did point out, hey, some people say, come on now, what about sanctification? A person surely is doing something himself. Walter's like, come on, a person never begins any good work of his own accord. God has to prompt him and even work in him to will and desire to to do the good work, which he then performs. Accordingly, whenever a Christian seems to do something good, it's by the power and the operation of God that they do it. They don't take credit for it. They simply say, thanks be to God that he enabled me to do this. I really want to turn, before we're done with this thesis, to a really insightful comment toward the, the end of the lecture. He said, with the papists, you know, their error is fundamental. Within the Protestant churches, there is, in most instances, faulty teaching on this point, too. It works like this. After declaring that salvation is altogether by grace through faith, many Protestants add, of course, faith must also produce good works, because they're afraid the above statement might offend people if it weren't qualified. But Walter says, by adding the qualification, they've perverted and upset their whole preaching. For with that qualification, all their preaching about grace and faith is futile and a wasted effort. For what they say with that qualification sounds as if faith were not sufficient for justification and had to be reinforced by love. So, Walter tells the boys, when y'all preach on this subject, this is how you've got to speak. Of course, a person that has not love, let him understand he doesn't have faith either. Hence, he cannot be righteous in God's sight. That's the proper way to speak. Not because love justifies a person in God's sight but because only that is genuine faith wrought by God through the Holy Spirit, which flows forth in love of God and love for our fellow man. I think that is a beautiful way to sum up the uh, second half of the thesis. So how would you put into a nutshell what Walther is trying to warn these young pastors to be against in their preaching and their handling of God's word? Well, he does not want them in any way to imply to their people that either faith is something that is intellectual acceptance of certain truths and not truly that which cleanses the heart, or that it's the cleansing of the heart, which faith does, that constitutes its justifying. He's like, you can fall off this horse on either side, and both of them will lead your people to trust in the wrong thing. The first one will leave your people in unrepentance because they'll think that they are still believers even when they're engaging in mortal sin. And on the other hand, you could lead your people to be in despair over their salvation because they're, or to even or worse, to, to not be in despair over their salvation and trust their works. And then in the end, come to despair because they know their works in the end finally will not save them. So he just warns on both sides, beware. You've got to speak clearly about this. And that's why I wanted to cite that thing at the end, because Walter gives it to you there, just white on black. This is how you need to say it, guys. And it's a very clear and it's totally in conformity with the Lutheran confessions because it's totally in conformity with the sacred scriptures. Well, you're going to be leading a hymn festival this coming Friday, September the 29th at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois. Tell us a little bit about it. Oh, I am so looking forward to that. This Friday is the Feast of St. Michael's and All Angels. And Martin Kimnitz said that the church observes festivals like this in the church that we can understand and learn the doctrine of scripture about 
the holy angels. And so this festival is there to teach us about the angels by letting us join in singing with them. We get to sing with the choirs of angels throughout the entire experience. We're going to read through a whole bunch of hymns. We're going to sing through a whole bunch of hymns, and uh, you're going to get to hear Christopher Lemker and uh, Zach Stegman and their mighty crew there at uh, Good Shepherd that, that will bring us such great music. Chris particularly has a gift of when he's playing the organ, he preaches the text as he's playing along, and it's just beautiful the way that it underlines the truth. You just can't miss it. So if you are at all in the area, man, it's not something you want to miss. It's going to be a wonderful evening of praise to God. Ye watchers and ye holy ones, yes, and so much more. I think our our final hymn is, uh, We Praise You and Acknowledge You, O God, to Be the Lord, which is just also one of the great classics of the 20th or 21st centuries. Everyone is invited to attend with Angels and Archangels, a hymn festival, Friday night at 7 at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois. You can learn more at withangelsandarchangels.org, withangelsandarchangels.org. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the book, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio, called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Todd. In our Two of Issues, etc., we're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, The Parable of the Two Sons with Pastor Sean Denzer. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues, etc. Issues, etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, cross-focused ministry of Issues Etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to 8th grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road. Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org. Join us September 29th at 7 p.m. for a hymn festival celebrating the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels at Good Shepherd Lutheran in Collinsville, Illinois. Hymn commentary will be provided by Pastor Will Whedon, host of the Word of the Lord Endures Forever podcast, along with organist Chris Lemker, orchestra and choir. For more information or to register to sing in the choir, visit our website withangelsandarchangels.org. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.